You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Today, we are driving to Washington, D.C. to speak with Dr. David Tobes. Dr. Tobes is a professor of psychology, director of the Suicide Prevention Laboratory, and associate director of clinical training at the Catholic University of America. He has also served as the president of the American Association of Suicidology, AS, and has received various awards for his scientific contributions. His latest book, Managing Suicidal Risk, a Collaborative Approach, is out now. So, Dr. Jobs, welcome to the RV. Well, thank you, Lucia, for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. It's an honor, Dr. Jobs, to have you here today. Before we dive into your amazing work, you mentioned that you are a lifelong martial artist with a black belt in Taekwondo. I think it's really cool. Can you tell us more about it? How did you start? Um, well, I started actually when I was in grade school. I, I was always interested in martial arts. I started out in judo. And I did uh, Shotokan karate. And then really over my um, young adult years and in college, I studied Taekwondo, which is Korean karate. Yeah. And then I had the really good fortune when my children were young, they were interested in martial arts and we were taking Taekwondo together as a, as a father and two boys. And we all earned our black belts and sparred together. And it's a big part of our family's life. It's to me, it you know, the, the Korean way is to learn to fight, not to fight. And there's a lot of philosophical and spiritual aspects to martial arts. So that, you know, that has always been a draw for me. And, um, and it was a great way to bond with my kids who are now young adults. It's interesting what you said. I see that the many individuals who practice martial arts seem to be some of the most peaceful people I've come across. I think there's something about uh, the discipline of um, of martial arts that is crucial. And the idea here is to, uh, to not be aggressive, mm. but to be able to defend oneself and defend to have a, a you know, sort of a, a way of being in the world. I, I, I know for young men, uh, for my kids, it was really formative to have this experience. They both went on to become wrestlers and, and wrestled in high school and were very good wrestlers, but it, it becomes part of your identity. It becomes part of the way that you look at the world. I mean, as a psychotherapist, I think a lot about um force and and um and the ways that we use 
uh, energy um, in terms of psychotherapy. And there's a lot about that that is a part of um, of uh, martial arts training and relevant to a lot of different things in life. And uh, I believe that there is a unique harmony and it also teaches discipline and also of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And meditation has been a big part of it as well. Um, so yeah, for, as a, as an experience over a lifetime, um, it was really something that was important to me and then obviously important in my relationship, with my kids. And then I think as young adults, they, they feel like it's a big part of who they were growing up and it's a point of reference. That's really valuable to us. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Tobes, your dedication to saving lives is truly remarkable and incredibly inspiring. So I've been in the field of suicide prevention for 40 years, uh, ever since graduate school. And uh, it, it really was something that I um, didn't necessarily think I was going to become an expert in. But I found once I, I got into the, the field, it was really compelling because Lucia, the vast majority of people who take their lives, I think, don't want to be dead. They just don't know what else to do. And they're in sort of desperate straits. So that's been my that's been my obsession. My focus, my passion has been working in this field and trying to help people save lives. And not just in terms of like preventing suicide. Obviously, that's a big, a big focus. But in identifying people who suffer and struggle in this way, um, it's a huge population of people, literally 15 million six hundred thousand Americans adults and teenagers who have serious thoughts of suicide. And that's that's a much bigger population. And, and that's kind of where my focus goes as a clinical psychologist, as a clinician, and as a researcher. I'm very focused on people who suffer and struggle in this way because it is obviously so devastating to lose someone to suicide. And for people who struggle in this way, it's such a tragic, to me, a tragic outcome when I believe there are treatments and interventions that can be life-saving and help people give a second second or third chance at making their life more worth living. And talking about numbers, I was reading your answers and I saw that the suicide rate among young population, let's say from 15 to 24 years old, is yeah. the second cause of death in the yes. United States. Yeah, it's you know it's a it's a mystery as to why um, we just got the provisional data from our Centers for Disease Control that we had the highest uh, gross number of suicides in 2022, which is the most recent year. We don't yet know the rate, and that won't be officially reported until January or February. But the, you know, it's it's heartbreaking that we had the highest number of suicides in our nation's history, and this massive group of people that are struggling with these thoughts. And one of the things that we've seen, you know, for example, that is vexing is that in 2019 and 2020, we saw a little bit of an, a, a decrease in the overall rates. And in 2021 and 22, it looks like they're ticking back up again. And so it it, it uh, makes suicidologists or people like me um, a little bit crazy because we think we're getting some some headway or, a, a, you know, a toehold on this. And then the, the, the data... Um, you know, continues to march upwards that I, what I would say about it is for the first time, for example, in the provisional data, we've seen indigenous Americans have actually a decrease in suicides, which in my entire career has never been the case. Uh, and then with young, younger people, like um, even pre-adolescents, some of those numbers have come down a bit. So these different populations, they wax and wane. One of the things I would say especially related to the pandemic, is that we've only seen increases 
in suicidal ideation, increases in anxiety, increases in depression, increases in substance abuse. And so uh, for all of us, you know, who have lived through the pandemic and are still dealing with vestiges of the pandemic, um, it's been a it's been a challenging time for mental health care. And I, I really do feel in, in an optimistic way, I really do feel like we've hit a tipping point, Lucia, in the more recent years in terms of a larger awareness about suicide prevention and the importance of this as a public health and mental health issue. We now have a three-digit number for the suicide and, life, suicide and crisis lifeline. And that is a huge development um, that um, when it was first proposed several years ago, uh, to have a three-digit number for suicide and crisis services was that will never happen, and uh, and legislation came about, and the previous administration signed off on it, and we now have this three-digit number. So that to me is really optimistic news and encouraging in the face of a lot of these challenging data and uh, challenges that we face in this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very encouraging, and we understand that suicide doesn't have a single cause. Yeah. It typically happens when various stresses and health issues come together. Yeah. Given that it's a September month and it's the awareness of suicide awareness month. Yes. We have some important questions for those tuning in into this episode. I will ask you some few questions. Of course. So, Dr. Jobs, what are the warning signs of someone who might be at risk for suicide? Yeah, that's a great question, Lucia. So, for many years, the field has been focused on risk factors, which are psychological or social um, variables that um, that don't necessarily get us close to like a near-term behavior. So, for example, being a middle-aged white male is over 80% of our suicides. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's definitely a dominated population of, of men in the, in the completions of suicides, but that's half our population. So one of the things about warning signs is they get us to a little bit more um, sort of near-term proximity to somebody being more at risk for a behavior. And when we look at the warning signs, what we really think of is what we call dysregulation or agitated states or things that contribute to that. So for example, if you and I don't sleep thoroughly through the night for several nights, we're going to be very agitated because we all need REM sleep, uh, you know, to um, for our psychological recovery. If there are certain alcohol or drug um, usage, um, or you know, states where people get, um, you know, dysregulated and or um, feeling perturbed or agitated, th those are things that we're concerned about especially if they have suicidal thoughts on board. So the idea that I would sort of impress is that there's a part of the brain that's responsible for fight or flight. It's called the limbic system. And it's, it's right here in the, the middle part of our brain. And there's a, there's a particular um, part of the brain called the amygdala. And when we um, are frightened or anxious or are challenged in some ways, that part of our brain activates and we get into this uh, mode of being hypervigilant and uh, upset or anxious or ready to react. And when that happens, Lucia, this part of the brain, the frontal cortex actually goes offline. And this part of the brain is really a crucial part 
of, of sort of modulating those intense emotions. So a lot of the interventions that we're probably going to talk about that are effective help the, the patient or the client recognize that I'm getting in a really agitated state where I'm starting to think about suicide and I'm starting to feel like I need to do something impulsively. And the intervention then is to try to re-engage this part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, to, to down-regulate, to sort of bring back cortical control, sort of control of the mind, so that I don't do something impulsive or make a suicide attempt. So that's a little bit in the weeds, but it's really important because um, it's not like somebody just walks along and says, oh, I'm going to kill myself and steps in front of a car. It really is much more the case that they've had suicidal thoughts, they get in these highly agitated states, and they feel out of control, and they don't know what to do. And sometimes they do have impulsive behavior, and sometimes it results in the end of their life. It's not rare to see in the news that someone took their own life, but yeah. the family says, he was so normal. This person was living a completely normal life. We did not realize nobody, not even their friends or partners. And that's why we we don't understand why it sometimes happens. Yeah. Well, those cases do exist. That's probably not the, the norm, that, but they get our attention, obviously, because it feels like it could happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if there are celebrities you know, that take their lives. It's it's very shocking to us because we we hold our celebrities up in high high regard. Um, but no one really knows what they're struggling with. Um, but yes, there are, for example, in high schools, the captain of the football team, the you know, the the uh the, the king of the prom, you know, the, the 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 person who seems to have it all, those definitely get our attention because they're they seemingly are such successful young people. But the vast majority of adolescents who end up taking their life have significant depression, anxiety, anxiety disorders, um, are substance abusing, are in in behavioral discontrol. They're they're shoplifting. They're they're acting out in certain kinds of ways. That's the majority of the teenagers that end up ending their lives by suicide. But of course, the the prominent high profile ones are the ones we kind of are drawn to when. As a clinician, I can say most of the people that end up taking their lives, we can tell they've got a very significant level of of an agitated depression or anxiety, substance abuse and alcohol problem. They're thinking a lot about suicide. They may have multiple attempts in their history. And so as a clinician, you can see that, you know, this is someone I'm I'm really concerned about, which is probably more typical, Lucia, of the people that end up uh, ending their lives. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Thank you for your explanation, Dr. Jobs. And another one, which I believe our listeners also would like to know, how can we support a friend or a family member who is struggling with suicidal thoughts? 
So super important question. I've, I've got a couple of thoughts on this. One is, um, especially I think for parents, but also for partners and loved ones, that it's hard to save a life if we don't know that suicidal thoughts are on board. And so as hard as it might be, I would encourage your listeners, if they're concerned about somebody to ask, have you thought about ending your life if you're concerned? And then be pre prepared for the answer. And to just listen to what the person that you care about has to say um, and not react and not get alarmed and not immediately call the police, but to listen to what they have to say and then join with them and support them in finding proper care. Now that's a big issue for us because a lot of clinicians and people are shocked to hear this, a lot of clinicians, psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, uh, licensed professional counselors, do not necessarily get suicide specific training in our professional training programs, which is people can't believe that that's the case, but that's true. Most clinicians learn about working with suicide by having a client or a patient that's suicidal and then kind of learn on the job. And we've, we're trying to change that. We're, we're trying to get more clinicians to learn and to be um, more uh, better steeped and educated and trained in assessment and treatment. So, if you're concerned about someone, my strong encouragement would be to ask and to do your due diligence. There's tremendous resources in this field. There's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP. There's the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. There's an organization called the American Association of Suicidology. And these websites have incredible resources um, for people that care about someone who might be struggling. And the one particular resource that I'm very keen on is a book that was just published in the last year that I wrote the forward to by Stacy Friedenthal. She'd be a great guest to have on your on your program mm -hmm. um, about uh, it's a book written for people who are concerned about someone who's suicidal. So I, the title is something like um, "Loving Someone Who's Suicidal," and mm -hmm. it's a uh, Harbinger Press, I believe. But it's a great book. It's beautifully written. Um, I absolutely endorse it because. It, it gives the reader a sense of what to say, what not to say. Um, it get, it's, a, it's a cornucopia of resources and links to different kinds of things. It really helps somebody. It's a very sort of critical book in our field because it really helps that family member, that loved one, you know, get up to speed with how they can help their the person of concern. And I'm a big fan of it. And I think it's a, it's, it's a must, uh, it's a must have if you're concerned about somebody. Wonderful. I will definitely contact the author and loving someone who is suicidal. So Stacy Friedenthal, she's a professor at the University of Denver. She she would be a great guest to have on your show. Thank you very much. Of course. And Dr. Jobs, the statistic on suicide rates among young people are alarming as we were talking previously. Yep. In your opinion. What do you believe are the factors contributing to this increase? You know, we don't know. Um, I mean, obviously with adolescence, it's very appropriate to be focused on your peers. And there's a lot of people that want to um, point to social media and uh, and say that that's the cause, that that's the, that's the magic cause. But we've had issues with suicide among young people for decades. Um, and... Uh, one of the things that's developed more recently is that young people of color 
are um, having um, increased uh, sort of rates of ideation. And that's not been a particular focus of our field. So part of the research that my lab is doing is, is trying to lean into focusing more on diverse populations. That the field, as I noted earlier, has been dominated by white males um, who make up so many of our completed suicides. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that other minority groups and diverse groups don't have challenges with suicide. What I think of with young people is that their peer attachments are very critical. It, developmentally, it's appropriate. They're, they're trying to separate from their family, develop autonomy, develop a sense of self. There's a lot of trial and error and mistakes are made and things are, things are, are done that they may look back on and regret. And a lot of us navigate that over time and, and sort of work through those difficult times. But there's a subset of kids, Lucia, that really uh, get stuck. And um, one of the things that we're seeing like in our clinical trials with college students and teenagers is that they get they get kind of captivated by this idea of suicide. And they they sort of, they do research on it. They, they, they kind of um, glamorize it or romanticize it. It becomes kind of a thing that they're drawn to. And they might meet other kids in chat rooms and so forth. And that's, for me, um, something that's very concerning. One of the things that we've seen, for example, in clinical trials, we have two clinical trials with, with teenage um, adolescents who are suicidal and then a college student population, is for the first time in my career, things like the earth is dying, uh, racial and gender oppression, I'll always be in debt, <laughs> I'll never own a house. I mean, things that I would say even 10 years ago, I would never have seen are now um, very much on the minds of young people. And, and this is in our news and in the media. And, you know, it's it's obviously something that we're very much aware of is, you know, political divisiveness, uh, um, climate change. These are things that are on the minds of young people that if they're personally struggling, can just kind of add on as a source of concern for young people that struggle in this way. Yeah, it's the uncertain future, like economic instability, and of course, concerns about the future, especially in terms of education and employment, because things are changing so much. But I believe that we always had some kind of concern about the future. It's not unique for young people to be concerned about the future. What is unique is you know, and people, this gets politicized, so I don't mean to be political, but, you know, is that is that we have climate situations, you know, hurricanes, wildfires, and things like that, that that I think, from a, a fact-based standpoint, we didn't used to have. Yeah. And um, and I know having a 26 and 28-year-old um, sons that, you know, housing and the idea of education and, and going debt is a, is a big focus and concern. Um, for their cohort, and it's a big preoccupation. A lot of young people I talk to never share the American dream of owning their own home because they feel like it's going to be out of reach and they can't afford it. I think it's kind of a cliche to say never before have young people faced what we're facing today. Uh, but to some extent, that is true. Um, it's always true and then uniquely true with some of the large worldwide trends that we see. Um, you know, you think of uh, Facebook is like a, a species level change that that they're and Facebook is out with young people, you know, mm -hmm. so it's more older people. But when you have things like that, where 
so many people have access to information. You know, I was in high school. There wasn't an internet. No. You, you couldn't Google just every sort of thing in the world for good and for bad, uh, which young people can now do. And so my position is that it's good. It's good news and bad news. Yeah. There are things about social media that could be quite helpful for, for greater mental health and suicide prevention. And of course, there are times when we've seen kids being bullied online where it's just ruthless. And I could say is a pretty significant contributor to a, a suicide attempt or completion. Exactly. I was talking to my daughter and she said, one day she asked, mom, how did you live without internet? Said, somehow, somehow we got by. I said, first, because we didn't know there is going to have uh, something like internet. Second, we played with our friends outside. So nowadays, I think kids are more isolated also because although they can communicate with anyone <laughs> in the whole world, they don't have some of them, don't have this close relationship. I mean... Or it's a different kind of relationship. I, you know, I, I remember the anecdote I always, I always share is like I, one day I was driving by a park near, near where we live and my, one of my sons was on his phone with his friends and they're all on their phones. And uh, later that day I saw him and I said, I said, can't you like, when you're together, can't you just like literally be together without being on your phones? And he rolled his eyes and said, um, don't you realize that we're bringing in other people that can't be there with us? It's just different, dad. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And I was like, huh, yeah, that is different. So it's different than what I knew and what you knew. It, it, it could be different bad. It could be different good. I think the jury's still out. I think what's very clear is there's a lot of people wondering about the, ex the extent of social media and that we're always on our phones or always online. And probably, probably one wise thought is like anything used in extreme is probably things used in, in sort of uh, extremes can be problematic and prudence is probably uh, wise, but I'm, I'm not sort of in the queue of saying, oh, it's all terrible. And that's the reason that, you know, we have all these problems today. I think it's a mixed bag and I think we're, the jury is still out right now as a professor, you know, I'm into a new semester and I've got to think about uh, chat GPT and AI. And I have students in my class that are going to be using it. And, uh, and I've got to figure out how we're going to handle it, I, you know, because it's it's a new tool. And I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think it's the, the scourge of society. I, I think it's I don't think it's the answer to everything, but it is a new development. And I think I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't sort of think about that in a thoughtful way and how to support my students using the tool in a responsible, thoughtful way. ChatGPT doesn't have a soul and it's not intentional, but it is an incredible resource. And I think if we can sort of harness its power, but still keep our soul and our intentions, then we may find the, the sort of the combination of things that work. Yes, absolutely. Now I would like to talk with you about your masterpiece. I mean, I know you've published six books, if I'm not wrong. It, six Seven books. books. Yes. And your work as an author in your field is really impressive. Dr. Jobs, I would like to discuss a little bit or to learn a little bit about your new book, which was published in August, mm -hmm. Managing Suicidal Risk, a Collaborative Approach. Please 
could you share a little bit about it? So um, this is the third edition. It's a it's a book written for clinicians, um, and so it's a, it's a trade book as it were. Um, but it's the third of three that is the capstone of this uh, of this course of work that I've been involved with. So it's about the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality, which is a, a much easier to just say CAMS. Uh, that's the acronym. Mm -hmm. And CAMS is a therapeutic framework that my lab has been developing over the last basically three decades um, as a clinical intervention. And then a lot of what I do um, in my professional life, Lucia, when I'm um, at the university, are, are what are called clinical trials. Um, so randomized control trials, we learned about with COVID um, in the development of vaccines, uh, RCTs, randomized controlled trials, are how we learn about a new medication or a new vaccination, or in this case, a new psychotherapy intervention for suicide, and whether it's effective or not in a causal way. So in other words, if I'm using this with a patient, it actually reduces their suicidal ideation and behaviors in a causal way. So that's been my passion for the last 20 years is doing clinical trials. And then that is reflected in these books that I've been writing. And so we now have seven randomized control trials of CAMS and 10 what are called open trials. Um, so there's a lot of evidence in support of the intervention and all that's featured in this third edition. So the, the first edition was very much about the assessment aspects of CAMS and, this, and that came out in 2006. In 2016, the second edition came out, and that was much more about treatment, and we'll, we can talk about that if you'd like. And this third edition is really the, the, the bookend. It's sort of like the, the the final sort of word on what we know about the intervention, um, what we have crafted as a as this being a, a, a useful approach for clinicians to use. And I'm super proud of it and, and so excited to be talking about it on your show. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Actually, congratulations, because your work is priceless. And what is the impact on CAMS, on reducing suicidal ideation? Yeah, it's... To be honest, it's the best intervention for reducing suicidal ideation. The, the field has about five or six, seven major clinical interventions that problematically are not widely used. So that's something I want your listeners to know about. A lot of what is done in the, in the clinical field has been to rely on hospitalization and medication, which we've been doing for decades. But really, we now have a number of these suicide interventions that are focused on suicide, no matter the diagnosis, and been proven to be effective in these clinical trials. What CAMS does best is reduce suicidal ideation very rapidly in six or eight sessions. It reduces overall symptom distress. It increases hope and decreases hopelessness. Um, and we have mixed and promising data on reducing self-harm and suicide attempts. But what CAMS clearly does is deal with that big population, that six, that 15.6 million 
Americans who have serious thoughts of suicide. It, it does that better than any other intervention. Some of the other interventions are good on behaviors and less on ideation. So there's a there's sort of a split in treatments. So if I'm working with a, a patient who's got a, many uh, suicide attempts in their history and perhaps a very chronic personality disorder, they might be better off in a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. But if I'm dealing with like a, a young person or college student who's never made an attempt before, but has very serious thoughts of suicide, that's sort of an optimal candidate for CAMS. So one of the things I talk a lot about when I talk to people like you is that we don't have a hammer all the world to nail. We do have different tools for different needs. And CAMS works with this big population, but it's not for everybody. It's just for this particularly large population. And the good news is that there are other treatments that work with some of the other populations. But clinicians don't necessarily use these. And so one of the reasons I feel so strong about being on a podcast like this or getting the word out is that we really have to change the mindset of clinicians, the public, and the media that a five or six day hospital stay does something magical. And that medications that might be good for depression or schizophrenia or psychosis, they don't necessarily impact suicidal ideation behavior. And that's shocking to a lot of people. They think, oh, a hospitalization, that, mu that must be the thing that, that, that saves the day. But there's actually data, Lucia, that there's an increased risk of suicide in the weeks and months following the discharge of an inpatient stay. So my view, we can fix that by having our inpatient stays be more focused on suicide. Mm -hmm. For example, we had a, a study in Germany and an inpatient unit in Germany where CAMS was used and we saw a, a nice decrease in attempts after that at hospitalization, but they were getting something more than just medication. They were getting a suicide focused intervention with data that proves it works. Wow, that's so promising, doctor. It's promising, but it's discouraging because a lot of times, even in our training, we'll train people and, and clinicians will say, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to hospitalize the patient because they're afraid of liability. And so this is a huge issue in America is that a lot of clinicians are, are preoccupied that if they, if they don't do defensive practices and hospitalize somebody and that person takes their life, their family's going to sue them for malpractice and their career will be destroyed. And the truth is those are very rare. And if you do effective care, especially care has been proven to be effective by clinical trials, that's your best defense from litigation if a tragedy should occur. So we're, we're trying to, to get clinicians to be aware of this, but there's a, a better safe than sorry kind of attitude that leads to a lot of hospitalizations that in my view are not necessary and may actually not be helpful or make things worse. And Dr. Tobbs, could you share a success story or a sure. case study that exemplifies the positive outcomes of your approach? Yeah, I mean, there's there's countless cases. I, I think a lot about our college student trial that's ongoing, where there was a woman from a foreign country um, who was having a, a very difficult time in her professional training program. Um lots of conflicts with professors and with her dean. Um, she was in a very toxic relationship with a boyfriend and um, and she had really seriously considered suicide. And the clinician who was actually a graduate student in the trial 
um, worked with her um, on telehealth. So we could we could do cams via telehealth. And this is a very memorable case because I, I it was a, a worrisome case. And um, actually in the course of the care, there was a lot of discussion about whether this particular student should be hospitalized. And I really um, strongly sort of fought for trying to work with her on an outpatient basis to really, and this is important about CAMS, we, <laughs> we ask the client or the patient, what makes you want to kill yourself? And that's what we treat in CAMS. So that seems maybe obvious, um, but that's a, a unique aspect to the intervention. And the vast majority of people, just like this woman, um, are focused on relationship problems, on vocational problems. So for her, it was, it was racial and gender oppression. And she was encountering a lot of um, sexism and being treated poorly as a, as a diverse uh, person from a foreign country. And it, it was enough to, to weigh on her to think, I, I, can't, I can't take it. And then she was having significant academic issues. And so one of the things I think about with that case is that it, a medication is not going to really sort of straighten out her academic issues or get people to not discriminate against her or treat her as lesser than because she's a, a foreign-born person. Yeah. So the clinician really leaned into this and um, did an amazing job. And then there was a crisis in the case. And a thing that I really remember about this case, um, Lucia, was that uh, the clinician actually moved from the telehealth delivery of the, of the care to actually meeting with her in the counseling center and uh, for the first time face-to-face. -face. And it was a huge moment um, and, and kind of a breakthrough of sorts. And we didn't used to see that because we didn't used to do telehealth. And now telehealth is actually, in my view, um, a great development because we can we can now extend care into remote and rural parts of the of the country um, where people aren't necessarily near a city. Um, and so I'm 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 of the mindset that, for example, telehealth is one of the few uh, positive things that came out of COVID nineteen. It catapulted us into a different level of uh, relying on technology in this way in a life-saving way. And this case turned out very well. Um, the student responded beautifully. And the clinician, you know, could could sort of take pride in, in doing, I think, a, a pretty significant piece of life-saving work. I will read about CAMS. I don't know if I told you I'm a physical therapist. But... Well, you know, as a physical therapist, that people have injuries that they feel they can't live with or live through. And then there are people who have relatively minor issues that that plague them and make them think they have to take their life. And so so in the in from my position, we don't judge that or sort of like evaluate that. We just try to every time that we engage with someone, understand for them in this person-centered intervention, what what compels them to think about this as an option. Because I'm convinced, Lucia, that you know that, that the vast majority of people that we engage are going to benefit from this. And the single biggest effect of CAMS in a meta-analysis, a, a study of studies that came out a couple of years ago, was that CAMS compared to usual treatment or control treatment increases hope and decreases hopelessness. And, and that is such a big deal because when there's hope, even in the face of a severe physical injury, as you know, as a physical therapist, or in the face of a psychological struggle, 
people can find their way and they can find a way to make their life worth living. And that's a big part of the intervention is to really try to try to move the patient from seeing suicide this way when they first come in to now seeing it this way over the course of care. And we don't have to eradicate every, every bit of suicidal thinking. What we do in CAMS is help them manage the suicidal thoughts and feelings. So they're, they're managing that and they're stable. And then we emphasize a lot towards the end of treatment, uh, a life worth living and developing purpose and meaning. And for a lot of people, that's all it takes. It, it sounds so simple. It's not always, but in six or eight sessions, we're seeing people meaningfully move to a different place where they can find a way to make it. That's that's amazing. We'd like to leave a message for our listeners today. Well, of course, first of all, just thank you, Lucia, for having me. I'm just very grateful for your time and for this opportunity. I, I just am so grateful for anybody that tunes into this because um, we all are part of the solution here. This is a, a leading public health issue. 15.6 million of our fellow citizens, adults and teenagers are struggling in this way. And we can all contribute to um, moving the needle on this issue. Um, but a lot of it involves doing exactly what we're doing here, raising awareness of the challenge of this, that there are effective treatments that we need to move away from a model where we assume that hospitalization and medications are always helpful and actually gravitate towards interventions that have been shown to be effective through randomized controlled trials. It takes 17 years, according to the research, for a proven intervention to become routine practice. So this is still a pretty young clinical science, but I, I am firmly I'm saying to you today that we've reached a tipping point of awareness and focus on this that I think is gonna carry the day. And doing this with me here is a part of that solution. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. And dear listeners, for those interested in learning more about Dr. Job's work, his article can be found in the September issue of the Relatable Voice magazine. Feel free to grab your free copy at www.relatable media.com to delve into his insights and many other engaging pieces. And Dr. Tobes, your invaluable contributions are deeply appreciated. Thanks, Lucy. I appreciate your time and appreciate people tuning into this. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.